how would you describe our city? What comes to mind when you think about Milwaukee? Is it your favorite place? Is our city even Milwaukee without our landmarks, without the art museum, the Paps Mansion, or even the scenic river walk? What defines our sense of place? I started thinking about this concept on my morning walks. For the longest time, I would stare at my feet when I walk, and honestly, I never looked around. And then it hit me and I began to take notice. Buildings were no longer a collection of bricks and started becoming characters of Milwaukee. Cities change, grow, crumble, or stay the same. Milwaukee is its own protagonist because it breathes its own life. What could our neighborhoods, homes, workplaces, and community spaces be like if they were created based on people's emotional, psychological, and social needs? What if we focused on empathy? This is Uniquely Milwaukee. It's everything you love about community stories, but more in depth. Giving the stories the time and attention they deserve. Changing perspective one episode at a time. I'm your host, Salam Fathayed, and this is Uniquely Milwaukee. Stories that stick with you. Let's take a step back and define empathy. For some like Brittany Thomas, lead anesthetist at Aurora St. Luke's, defines empathy as putting another person first. Empathy is remembering that everybody you interact with is a person. It is so easy to start thinking of everything in fast motion and even thinking of people as pawns or almost like machinery, if you will, and forgetting they are actually people with feelings and families and lives outside of however you're connected with them. Brittany is absolutely right. Empathy is the ability to place ourselves in another person's shoes. But what does empathy look like in design? Why is it so important to start with compassion when problem solving? Okay, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let's narrow our focus a little bit. There are two primary forms of empathy, cognitive and emotional empathy. Emotional empathy is what Brittany was talking about, sharing an emotional experience with someone. Whereas cognitive empathy is the act of understanding the perspective by psychologically identifying their mental model, point of view, or state of being. In this episode, we are strictly speaking about cognitive empathy. Before architects ideate, prototype, and test, they first have to define the need. Let's say that I need to renovate a bathroom. It's old and it's not functioning correctly. Maybe the grout around the sink is chipping away. Or maybe the placement of the toilet paper holder is out of reach and uncomfortable to grab. How does an architect reconstruct this bathroom? And what's the first step in this new design? I spoke with Trudy Watts. I'm an assistant professor of architecture at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee School of Architecture and Urban Planning. And she walked me through the wondrous world of architecture. In order for me to appropriately propose something that's going to work for you in your life and improve something about your bathroom for you, which is, I assume, why you would hire an architect to change something about the environment that you're living in. I need to understand lots of things about you, your lifestyle, your relationships, your tastes, your goals, what was working for you and not working for you in the bathroom in its previous state. So observation, and I would say an empathetic understanding of what other people are experiencing is really essential to all architectural design, whether it's 
renovating a bathroom or something of much broader consequence like designing a skyscraper or a library. Let's use the example of a library. An architect can't speak to everyone that uses one. What's the workaround? This is where a design charrette comes to play. Think of a charrette as a city hall meeting, or in some cases, multiple meetings, but for architecture. So a group of planners, citizens, city officials, and architects meet in order to gain perspective to create a design. Now, although this is a common approach, it still doesn't completely solve the problem of alienating people that feel like they aren't an expert. This can have the, I think, unwanted and unintended impact of amplifying the voices that are already the loudest and most confident voices in the room. People that have the most power, the most money, the people that are paying for the project could also just be people who have the strongest opinions. So Trudy, where does someone like me come to play? I'm a normal citizen living in my neighborhood, not really an expert. I don't think I qualify to attend a design charrette. Where do I fit in all of this? That's one of the challenges of the the work that I'm doing is figuring out how to talk to people in a way that doesn't shut them down. So I I would the, my the analogy I like to use is you know have you ever been at a wedding say or a party and asked someone to dance and they're like no no no, no I can't dance yeah basically you're describing me before the vodka hits <laughs> yeah, totally I used to be that person but now. Backup dancer is my plan B to architecture professor. Before becoming an academic, I was practicing professionally, primarily in Philadelphia. And I saw that over and over again in professional interviewing settings. There would be someone in the room who felt really confident. Maybe they had taken an interest in architecture at some point in their life. They read a lot of magazines. They follow the journals. Or maybe they did architecture in school as a degree program or, you know, did part of architecture school. So they felt empowered to speak on a topic that is, you know, an area of expertise for some, like like us architects. Um, but actually, everyone is consistently experiencing the built environment. I know what it feels like to be in my house. I know what places give me the greatest sense of satisfaction, where the sun comes in in that special way through the window, where the height of the ceiling, you know, just works with the proportions of the room and, you know, I can catch the smells from the kitchen and I can hear a little bit of conversation coming from the other, you know, my mom's in the other room talking on the phone. Those are the things that warm our hearts that help us know that we belong in a place and communicate to us that we're cared for and are of value. So those are some examples of how how architecture is consistently coloring our experience, whether or not we always recognize it as doing so. This works in theory, but is it easily taught? Well, Trudy teaches an upper-level design studio titled Vulnerability, where students learn how architects support the well-being of the re-entry community through self-reflection, applied compassion, collaboration, and inclusive design. Trudy's class shows that this new approach works. The course works with a core team of five advisors who mentor students in their efforts of creating mock design proposals of Central Door, an upcoming Milwaukee re-entry campus for Milwaukee folks who are reintegrating into society after incarceration. Which is a deeply dehumanizing experience, whether a person has spent five years or 50 years in confinement. So we worked with the students this semester to interview about 
20 members of the reentry community. We had panel discussions with the reentry members of the, and leaders in the reentry community, as well as in the criminal justice system here in Milwaukee. Really, we, you know, we spent about a month listening really deeply. And as a part of that, you can imagine there's some pretty difficult stories that I have to say we were all really touched at the level of vulnerability and humanity and trust that people were willing to bring to to talk about S.B. Crosley in particular, his friend Phil Harvey, who came in and talked to us and shared what it was like to be incarcerated for 45 years and then to come out and you know, just sit on a porch and look at the world around you as a, a person, a free person for the first time in 45 years or uh, looking for a job for the first time in your entire life after 45 years of confinement. So those were, those were really challenging stories to hear. The course was done with awareness practices such as mindfully listening without an agenda during the interview process. In the end, after, you know, a month or so of interviewing, which for those who don't know, is a very long time to spend on in individual interviewing in a class setting. So compare that against what I was saying about charrettes before, where you might have a couple of, you know, even four or five community meetings with a ton of people in a room, like in a town hall style. What we were doing was different. We were speaking with people on an individual basis, you know, with an entire class of people all listening to the story of just one person at a time. Trudy planted a seed in my head. I've noticed ever since I sat down and chatted with her, I found myself approaching buildings with a critical eye. However, my eye is only trained to see the aesthetic of a building. I still don't know the decisions and reasoning behind certain design choices. I needed to speak to some experts. Hey, can you hear me? Architect Matthew Edwards and interior designer Mary Claire Knistra both practice at Milwaukee-based Quorum Architects. They both are experts in healthcare design, especially treatment spaces for trauma survivors. So they know how important it is to get the details right and design from a place of empathy. Where does empathy play in a role in your design process? Everywhere in design thinking, especially when we design healthcare spaces or our spaces for veterans, really any space, I suppose. I think empathy is the hugest factor, the biggest factor, because we try to put ourselves into the patient's or the user's shoes uh, or the family members of those patients or users and really think about how we would want that space to be either for us or for that family member. Everything from imagining if they're staying somewhere overnight making sure they feel at peace, making sure they feel safe, making sure they feel at home and really nurtured by the space. And even if it's just something during the day, it's how can we support the user? How can we make them feel the way we would want to feel in that space for whatever use it is? If it's a clinic space, a dentist's office, trying to eliminate fear, anxiety, and making that space feel like it's really designed for you and that experience that you're there for. I, I think just to build on that, you know, there's lots of research design, especially designed for healthcare, designed for empathy, about how like colors and materials and the physical environment affect people and have like a positive, well, it could be negative, but most, you know, like a positive impact on 
healing for patients. So, you know, it's not just like kind of intrinsic ideas, it's actually like real research driven. Colors and emotions are incredibly linked. Subconsciously, they can make us feel anxious or relaxed. For example, one of the many reasons you don't see hospitals with the color red is because that color is energetic and active. And with a person with PTSD, it can trigger off emotions. But you also don't want to be in a room full of white because that can be perceived as sterile. Therefore, browns and natural tones are kind of warm and have a connection to earth and are considered grounding colors. But did you also know that textures can also play a significant role in your emotions? Especially natural materials. So like the texture of wood um, or the texture of stone, a lot of natural materials have a kind of a tactile response versus like metals or stainless steel may have a different kind of connotation. So those kinds of textures carpet textures also if you think about ptsd specifically how sometimes noise can also be a trigger so if you have a very loud space with a lot of hard materials that's a lot of reverberation those tend to be or could cause anxiety versus if you're using lots of natural materials and carpets to kind of deaden the noise it kind of makes the feel a little bit softer or sheltering and patterns are also that way so i'm going to again go back to the ptsd there's research that goes back to like strong angular patterns sometimes are are jarring or make people feel unsettled versus very like strong horizontals help to feel calming and and solid (laughs) or a lot of curvilinear patterns kind of referencing back to nature those also have an effect on on emotion. Let's take a trip to Milwaukee's West Lawn Gardens neighborhood. In 1952, on former farmland, on the outer edge of the city, the West Lawn Gardens housing project was a product of its era. According to the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority, that 75-acre site was there to provide affordable dwellings for families. It was referred as barracks housing, meaning long buildings built to house military personnel or laborers. The site's buildings were ineffective, undersized for many families in need, and isolated residents from surrounding neighborhoods through poor community design. In this neighborhood, Quorum Architects developed the Victory Manor project. Victory Manor is a property that features 61-bedroom apartments and on-site amenities such as a fitness center, a game room, and a business center for homeless veterans. One of the things that we found is because they have like what we would call comorbidities or multiple different issues, so PTSD, maybe some physical disabilities, struggles with homelessness or addiction, so one of the things that we found out is that there's like this what we would call defensible space. So like not having your your door to your apartment opening right onto the corridor um, because there's just that one door between you and somebody you don't know, and that could cause stress. So one of the things that we did is we actually recessed the entries to create this little like uh, no man's land or kind of that buffer space between their apartment and the public corridor. And it's not something that you would ever really even like notice, I mean, you would see when you're walking down the hall that the that the entries are pulled back a couple feet, but it's just that little buffer space that helps give somebody a, a you know a sense of 
of personal space. And it's, it's one of those little design ideas or those design things that we, that we as architects and interior designers kind of um, slip into our design that maybe most people would never really notice. I was going to add to that, that those are often the things that we though disguise as more like design features so that they feel intentional with the rest of the design, but they're very, very functional really at the core. So like Matthew was talking about the entries into the units being recessed, we also then added a ledge, which was a personal for those users. So it felt like a little kind of front porch to them, although it had those the very user-specific to PTSD and the defensible space aspects, it also just, we disguised it to make it feel like this is a personal little zone to my, my unit that I can personalize that feels like a little front porch. A city is a physical construction created by man, but it affects our human and social interactions. Therefore, our lived spaces need to be a response to better our quality of life. Through the lens of empathy, it empowers us to not only think about urban spaces differently, but actually to reimagine the very basis of how we think about when making places in cities like Milwaukee unique and inclusive for everyone. I'm your host, Salam Fatayer. Thank you to Nate Imig, our executive producer. Kenny Perez, our audio engineer, with additional story support by Evan Radalowski. Thank you for our marketing team led by Sarah Lar. Graphics and our wonderful logo was made by Aaron Bagada. Our community engagement manager is Maddie Reardon. And Dan Ryder handles our social media accounts. And a big special thank you to our city-loving members for making Uniquely Milwaukee possible. Tune in next Monday for our next episode. <laughs>